This episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? You can skip all the grocery store shopping. I mean, this week, already putting off grocery store shopping to, to my own detriment, right? Nothing in the fridge. And it's because I don't want the hassle. And this helps you skip it, right? All those trips to the grocery store, get them out of here. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in like 30 minutes. 30 minutes or less, right? It's like the new Domino's. Domino's did not pay for this. I should not say their name. Uh, With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everybody. Like, how about firecracker meatballs? My two favorite words put together in one recipe. Uh, And all the recipes are designed, tested by professional chefs, nutritional experts. Like, everybody gets together in a room. They're like, yes, this one, not that one. Uh, Go to the link in our show notes. Get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. It's the number one meal kit. HelloFresh. Now, rock and roll bedtime stories commence. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. I'm Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. We exist to set straight the rumor and innuendo you've heard about your favorite bands and your favorite songs. When I put the phrases rock and roll and Star Spangled Banner together in the same sentence, First thing that comes to mind, so so it, it's if Hendrix then, uh, yeah, sure, right? Like I can okay. see, the, I can see the photograph, the image. I thought I thought it was a trick question. I was gonna go, is it Bob Dylan's son? No, why would it be Bob Dylan's son? <laughs> I don't know. I just picked something weird. So I, I, I can see the photograph when someone says Rock and Roll and Star Spangled Banner, right? The image has been burned in my mind of Jimmy on stage at Woodstock. The bombast of the solos meant to illustrate sonically the violence that was being perpetrated in the name of patriotism, et cetera, et cetera, whatever, right? In fact, do you remember when you and I were working together in the event space and we created this concept of a wing-eating festival with classic rock cover bands playing? <sighs> Do I? When I when I when I when I heard uh, for whom the bell tolls walking to my car this weekend, I remembered Wingfest very much. So, oh, but yeah, go ahead, dude. Wingfest was man, that was that was quite a thing we did together, Burdock. That was some magic. Do you remember how really cool. one year we we convinced our buddy Dan to kick off the show by by basically doing his own version of the Jimi Hendrix Star Spangled Banner. Oh, yes, that's right. Do you remember how mad the neighbors got? It was noon on a Sunday, and the people who lived three houses on the other side of the bar parking lot where we were executing this, apparently it stayed up very late. They were not happy about hearing Dan shredding at 11.59 (laughs) a.m. Were you around for that, or were you doing something else when this guy showed up? I must have missed that. Guy comes blazing in, screaming about don't you understand people are trying to sleep and we're all like bro i mean like we want to be sympathetic but it's noon and you live by the bar district like sorry brah but what if i told you that jimmy's idea to do a subversive version of the national anthem was not an original idea uh yeah sure because i thought i thought we were going to go somewhere weird so in fact he was really just emulating somebody else somebody he admired Someone whose equally controversial performance a mere, actually less than a year earlier, has mostly been erased from the pop cultural conscience. And I think it's partly because Jimmy's version in the waning moments of what was to become one of the defining cultural moments of the century, Woodstock, sort of has overshadowed it. 
But if if wow. I'm if I'm you, I'm asking, how do you even know if Jimmy knew about this performance or knew about this artist? You said he admired him. How do you know that? June fourth, nineteen sixty seven, London Speakeasy Club. Jimi Hendrix is in the audience. He's attending a show. He's in the audience. He goes on stage after the show to compliment the performer, and he compliments him on his, quote, extraordinary guitar work. So let me make sure I'm being clear about this. A guy, Jimi Hendrix, who we have stamped in American rock pop culture as basically the greatest guitar player of all time, was openly impressed by another guitarist, so much so that he made it a point to wait after a show to meet the guy and tell him himself. Do you have any idea who we're talking about? I do know who one of Jimmy's favorite guitar players were, but I, I don't. I think it's a long shot. I don't think it's well, the same person. You definitely know who this guy is. Do the, should I do the guess? You ready for the guess? Well, hold on. It's likely okay. you know him for one particular song. Let's see if this helps you confirm oh. or deny. Okay, then I. Well, then it totally changes my immediately changes who I know who I think I is. So I think I think it this is. guy yeah. has lots of other songs, but in America we basically know him for one song, just to be frank and honest. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. Feliz Navidad. I, I want to point out. I'll be honest. I didn't realize Jose Feliciano wrote this song. Like yeah. this has become a standard. Like we think of it in the uh, in the songbook, you know, especially when it comes to Christmas. But that's a that's an original composition by Jose Feliciano, and I think I, I mean I don't know about you, but I didn't know Jose Feliciano. I don't think of him as an amazing guitar player. Did you? I I guess I haven't thought about it for a long time. If that's really the truth, I I definitely just know that because man, I'm I'm awfully familiar with that song. Uh, well, we both worked in radio formats that had to flip all Christmas at different points in our career. And let me tell you, you play a lot of Elton John step into Christmas. You play a lot of Paul McCartney, wonderful Christmas time. And you play a lot of Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad. Those are like the three core tunes. And that McCartney song is the only song where sometimes I just daydream in my head what it would be like to be like an, a character in the movie Clue, and I just have the candlestick, but instead, of, <laughs> I, instead of, I just go around and I kill everybody with it while, while that song's playing. I hate that song so much with a passion. It is a travesty of, of the Paul McCartney canon. That, I hate that song. All right. So, so Jose... Monserrate Feliciano Garcia was born in 1945 uh, in, in Lares, Puerto Rico. He was the fourth of 11 sons. Gosh. And he was born blind. Congenital what? glaucoma. Did you know he was blind? Is no. blind? Continues to be blind? Uh, no, he's blind? He's blind. Always has been blind. Born blind. Story goes he was enthusiastic about music at a young age playing around with whatever he could get his hands on, and even teaching himself to play the accordion at age seven, which I find a funny mental picture. Like, a kid with an accordion? Do they make kid-sized accordions? I need to... Do, do you have to that. be up on, like, a little stool when you play it? Because that's, cute <laughs> that's the cutie pie part. So, the family's in Puerto Rico. They moved to Spanish Harlem in New York City. And so you have this kid in a strange new place who, who can't see, so, you know... Uh, but he's got this brilliant aptitude, and when he's nine, his dad gives him a guitar. 
And the lore says that he literally spends all his time locked away in his room with that guitar, learning to play by listening to jazz and classical guitarists. Mm. Guys like Andres Segovia and Wes Montgomery. But he also benefits from timing because he's born in 45. He's 10, so it's the early mid-50s. And while he's learning, he also gets to discover the new concept of rock and roll like in real time. It's happening in the moment. And this is important because it sort of helps to explain the crazy cocktail of skill that this guy has. He's playing a nylon string guitar, mm-hmm. which is not seen, especially at the time, as a rock and roll instrument. But at this point, even the nylon string version of the guitar is not fully accepted as a serious, quote-unquote, serious instrument. Because wow. Feliciano tries to apply to the High School of Music and Art in New York City, and they tell him he can't apply with a guitar. Wow. They're like, you, you need to play the piano. And he literally says in interviews, there was a socioeconomic thing at play here because they lived in a tiny apartment and there was no way they could afford in a piano, yeah. A, a, yeah. a piano, I mean, with money or with space. Like there was just no way that they could do it. Yeah. And how true, how true is that? Who can have a freaking piano? So, you know, he does get some lessons at the Lighthouse School of the Blind eventually. And he actually takes lessons from Harold Morris. Do you recognize that name? No. So he, ag- Morris. he actually taught Andres Segovia, who is, you know, one of Ho- Jose Feliciano's idols, and his name, but you've probably seen Harold Morris's name on instructional booklets. Like, he, he's, like, actually written beginner guitar booklets and stuff. Oh, oh, maybe so. And maybe they're in my house. Downstairs. Yeah, right? Uh, so at 17, in order to help support his family... Jose leaves school and starts frequenting the coffee shops of Greenwich Village. And yes, Greenwich Village, early 60s. Sounds familiar. It's because that's the same scene that births people like Joan Baez and this guy named Bob Dylan. In in fact, there is a great story of Jose Feliciano doing an impression of Bob Dylan during his act one night at Gertie's Folk City in the village. And then finding out that Dylan was in the audience and being very embarrassed and having to apologize personally to Bob Dylan about it. Let let me sidebar for a second. This is just something I discovered while researching. I'm just stunned about everything you just said. Okay, keep going. Are you familiar with the Pop Chronicles? Basically, this was like the first rock and roll podcast. Though, of course, it had to be aired on the radio at the time. It was, so ho- no, no. it was hosted yeah. and headed up by this guy named John Gillian, who went to the Monterey Pop Festival and got really jazzed about what he saw at the Monterey Pop Festival and wanted to create some sort of historical document. It's widely considered now to maybe, quote, constitute the most complete audio history of the 1940s through the 1960s in popular music. They originally aired on the radio starting in 1969 and concluded in about 1974. I think there's like 55 episodes. So I bring this up because there are interviews from Jose Feliciano in these broadcasts, and you can listen to all 55 hours of these. I'm about to, sh- oh man, I'm about to waste so much of your time. You are going to go down a wormhole. University of North Texas Library has digitized them and put them online. So the link is in the show notes, but you can actually go and pull up all these individual interviews, and it's like, here's five minutes of Jose Feliciano talking about that time he met Bob Dylan in Greenwich Village, and it's just raw audio. Of him, you can hear the interviewer and everything. It's pretty amazing. All right. And so on those tapes, he actually tells that Bob Dylan story. So you can hear him tell it. 
back to the main action here. Hanging out in Greenwich Village turns out to be a really good move because Jack Somer, who's an executive at RCA Victor, ends up hearing him play and signs him to a record deal very quickly. And by 1964, his first single is out. It's called Everybody Do the Click. (laughs) And it's sort of hard to find now. I'm going to put it in the show notes, but I'm going to warn you that it's a little racist. And also, it's pretty derivative. And it's not a hit in the U.S. for Jose, but it does really well in the Philippines. And if you want to hear more about Filipino music culture, check out Frank Sinatra versus karaoke a few episodes back in our catalog. That's right. Uh, But this does make enough noise for Jose to get invited to the Newport Folk Festival. So in 64, he's there. In 65 and in 66, he releases his first two records. Uh, One is called The Voice and Guitar of Jose Feliciano, and the second is called A Bag Full of Soul. And these start to get him some attention. In 66, he performs at a music festival in in Argentina, and the RCA Victor guys see more dollar signs in their eyeballs and realize, wait a second, this guy can be a bilingual artist for us. We can make him work in multiple markets. So they want him to record in Spanish, but they aren't really sure like what to have him record in Spanish. Like, does he just do old, you know, his English songs and do them in Spanish, which, you know, the translation doesn't always work. So Feliciano suggests that he records Bolero music, which is the stuff that his parents had kind of grown him up on. And then he sort of adds in these blues and folk influences that he has from playing in the village. And that works. He has two smash hit singles and he launches his career by specifically leveraging an appetite in Latin America and Hispanic communities in the U.S. Because they're not getting stuff targeted at them. And so he even does, at this point in his career, a Spanish version of Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. I know, oh, that's lovely. I know you've been dying to hear that. Uh, he has a couple more albums that work, and then he moves to L.A., and he meets this guy named Rick Girard. And Rick Gerard is producing records for RCA Victor, but he's working for the other end of the catalog. He's been producing records for Jefferson Airplane and for Harry Nilsson. And when they get together, they do a record called Feliciano with a with an exclamation point. <laughs> and on this album... I love the way you said it. <laughs> Feliciano! And on this album, Jose covers a little song made popular by The Doors called Light My Fire. Oh, I've heard this, and boy, I like it. This is important because it works as a canvas on which Feliciano can really start to clarify what his style is, right? Because he's got these soul and folk and rock influences, but he's clearly got this Latin flair. And if he's just writing songs, he sort of gets pigeonholed. But if he plays songs that people recognize but then he makes them different. People start to understand the uniqueness he brings, right? Because yeah. otherwise it's just, hey, this sort of sounds like it has a Spanish flair. But if you hear, you know, come on, baby, light my fire with a Spanish flair, you're like, oh, there's a guy specifically doing something different. What a great way to explain him, like, in a way, because imagining how audiences would grab on to his style without really kind of being fed to him, fed to yeah. them. Yeah, right. so he does this a lot. He actually builds a lot of his career. And if you go look at his catalog, there's a lot of covers in there. And it's because it gives people something to latch onto, and then they can go deeper. Now, he's, he's a good songwriter. He actually writes a song early in his career. For instance, he goes to the UK, 
and he has a seeing eye dog, and they won't let his seeing eye dog in uh, because there's a rabies scare in the UK at this time in the 60s. And so he writes a song called No Dogs Allowed, which is also a hot jam that I highly recommend, uh, about this this specific thing that happens to him. So, I mean, he is writing songs. He is having experiences. He is really, there is true expression and artistry there. It's not that he's just picking off other people's tunes, but I think he understands pretty quickly that to catch on, he has to reinterpret some things for people to understand what he's trying to do. And we talked about on the Ice Ice Baby episode, uh, the Vanilla Ice episode, that Ice Ice Baby was a B-side. Same thing which here. Is a, which is amazing. So it happens. It, a B-side. it happens here too. Light My Fire was a B side. Jose was doing California Dreaming on the other side, on the A side. Huh. But there's a DJ in Seattle who preferred Light My Fire, played it on the air, and voila, a million copies sold in the US market alone. Remember when DJs had that sort of power? When you and I were DJs, yeah. we did not have that sort of power. Um, no. I got there in trouble a- if I played the wrong song. Yeah, I worked at a, a place where I, I could I could drop two songs an hour and play any two that I wanted to, and then I did get I didn't get in trouble, but they did let me know that I was dropping you know songs that I couldn't drop because uh, <laughs> I'd be there like I'm like playing that piece uh, of garbage yeah. <laughs> like yeah. shrinks, um, yeah. So, but yeah, we but thinking about. The fact that that's that DJs flip that record over and have changed like changed the trajectory some, of full careers by flipping the yeah. record over. Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So, "Baby Light My Fire" becomes a number one hit in many countries, including Canada, Brazil, and the UK, and it was awarded a gold disc. And on the strength of this success, Feliciano wins two Grammy awards in '68. He actually wins Best New Artist of the Year and Best Pop Male Performance. Wow! So it's here Doing a cover. With this background and with this momentum and with this fame that we get to the main course of this story. Yeah. And the main course of the story happens in October of 1968, which, as I've already pointed out, is a little less than a year before Woodstock happens. Remember, this episode is brought to you in part by HelloFresh. If you're stuck in a dinner rut, you can get out of it with a little help from HelloFresh. It shows up at your door. It's pre-measured. It's mouth-watering. It's seasonal. All those trips to the grocery store can be ixnayed. And uh, now you can count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy and fun and fast. 30 minutes, and you can get uh, dinner on the table. And like I said, the professional chefs and the nutritional experts, like they don't agree on a lot, they agree on this. So you can go to the link in our show notes now and get 80 bucks off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. Back to the show. Jose is 23 years old, and Tiger's broadcaster, Ernie Harwell, invites him to perform the Star-Spangled Banner before Game 5 of that year's World Series, Tigers versus oh, the St. Louis Cardinals. Wow, this is a World Series performance? So okay. World Series game. Now, this is uh, Ernie Harwell, the Tigers announcer, said in a 2009 interview to the Detroit Free Press that I'd, quote, heard about this young Puerto Rican blind who had just burst on the scene. Um, and... Harwell was an amateur songwriter, so the Tigers general manager, Jim Campbell, had had said, why don't you go find the people to sing the anthem before the World Series, right? It's like, wow. let's tap into his strengths. I can see this happening with you or I, right? We work in another job, and somebody's like, listen, we got the music thing. You, you take care of it. So the night before, game four, he has gotten Marvin Gaye. And here's the irony. Campbell, the general manager, 
tells Harwell, please go and tell Marvin not to put too much soul into his rendition. Like, legitimately. He says, don't mess with this. But he doesn't ask Feliciano to do it. Traditionally. He doesn't say, like, you know, hey, make sure you do this real straight ahead. He doesn't say anything to him. And Marvin Gaye slayed the national anthem he, at the NBA finals later. Yeah, and and he slays it here, but he does it straight ahead. But Feliciano says this, quote, I had been working on a version of the anthem at least a year before that, but it was totally, totally radical and different than what I did. And I said, well, Jose, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't be so radical and do it a little bit easier for them to listen to and know that you weren't just messing around with the anthem. So he thinks he's being somewhat straight ahead. The 23-year-old Feliciano walks out with his service dog to center field. He settles on a stool. He cradles his guitar. Ladies and gentlemen, your attention, please. Please rise and join in the singing of our national anthem, which will be played by Merle Albee's band and will be sung by Jose Feliciano. What do you think of that, man? It was really beautiful. It's like the first time I heard it, I was just blown away. Like it almost gives me chills. Like it's just yeah. gorgeous. Oh, yeah. It's an absolutely gorgeous rendition. Feliciano says, I heard some cheers, but they were very sparse. And I heard a lot of boos. And I said, wow, what did I do? Why are they booing me? I had to head back to the airport and back to Vegas. And I was thinking to myself, what did I do? And Tony Kubek, who was a broadcaster then, came to me and said, you've caused some uh, commotion here. The phones for NBC at the network have been ringing. So when we talk about Jimmy's performance, the focus is on the noise, right? Like we already mentioned this idea of sonically illustrating the violence that was being perpetrated in the name of patriotism, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) Yes, that. Uh, But that's not Jose's approach. Like he shows up with an acoustic guitar and he performs a version of the song it frankly doesn't sound like the song, which I think is part yeah. of what, what upsets people. The problem is, yeah. And the general response at the time was to read that as very unpatriotic. Right. Isn't that weird? 
Yeah, I mean, so Feliciano, he's got shaggy hair. He's got sunglasses, which people took as being disrespectful, not realizing he was blind. <laughs> oh. He was wearing it for his blindness, not for style. He's got a guide dog by his side. And it's scanned to a lot of conservative onlookers at that baseball as an institution was supporting hippies and opposing the Vietnam War. Wow. How messed up. And so, he's just showing up to play this cool version of the anthem he wrote. He's just, he's just too cool. So Jose speaking here says, you know, my records were stopped. People at radio stations stopped playing my records after this. They wanted to deport me, but you can't deport a U.S. citizen. That was very funny to me. I thought, where the hell am I going to go? <laughs> People were, awesome. people were pledging, their right, uh, pledging to write their elected representatives about it in outrage. Uh, Roger Maris, this is actually a quote from baseball great Mar- Roger Maris, baseball. who played for the Cardinals at the time. Quote, I don't think it was the proper place for that kind of treatment. Maybe I'm a conservative. Uh, fellow Cardinal Tim McCarver was a little more progressive. He said at the time, why not that way? People go through a routine where they play the anthem. They stand up and they yawn and they almost fall asleep. At least this way people listened. And when asked why he did it, Jose kind of says something that's in agreement with that. He says, I had gotten sick and tired of hearing it the old way and the audience not being into it. Get to the end of the song and the audience would start clapping like saying, thank God this thing is passed. And I got tired of that. I did. I really, really did. And I said, I'm going to fix it. So I don't want to turn this political at all. I'm only going to say that a few years ago, I think this story would have felt sort of quaint and dated. But n- yeah. now I don't think it does at all. <laughs> it, to me, feels very relevant when we think about how people react when people take something as precious as the National Anthem or the Pledge of the Allegiance and they do something that is thought of as disrespectful during it. I, I think we've seen this play out in a lot of different ways, from other renditions of the Anthem throughout the years to public displays of dissent during the Anthem, which we've obviously seen a lot. At the time, in 68, the loud amplified voices were mad but the general public cited they court they sort of turned out to feel like tim mccarver the baseball player who said hey at least people were listening rca records decides to have feliciano record a version of the song in that style and it charts at number 50 on the hot 100 that is the first time in history that the national anthem has ever charted on, on Bill wow Hall. yeah yeah now very soon political displays during the anthem become much more commonplace. That same month, American athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists while the Star Spangled Banner played during a medal ceremony at the 68 Olympics. And of course, we've already mentioned Jimi Hendrix, and there's a lot of others. But Feliciano says this to NPR in 2017, and I love this quote. The only thing I can say about all of those versions is that they wouldn't have done it if I hadn't done it, and I'm glad that I did. Now, Feliciano's rendition plays on loop if you go visit the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. Get out. Uh, no, it does. And the, Get the hell out. The guitar he used sits in the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. And he's been back to Tigers games to perform this again more than once. May 2010, days after the death of Eddie Harwell, the guy that invited him the first time, and then again, oh. in, again in 2018. No way. But there's a great side story here that's covered in this excellent 2019 piece done by an NPR station called WBUR. Uh, And this is in the show notes. 14-year-old Susan O'Million is walking home from school the day that this happens in Detroit. 
And she says, I heard that something had happened at the ballpark and people were talking on the streets and on the porches along the way. And when I got home during the news, they showed a clip of this guy playing the guitar and singing the anthem in a way that no one had ever heard. And I was like, wow, this is cool. And there was so much negativity that I thought was unnecessary. I don't know. I'm a 14-year-old. What can I do? And back in those days, if you're me, what I decided to do was to start a fan club. So this woman, Susan, starts a fan club as a 14-year-old for Jose Feliciano. A few years later, she gets to meet Jose, and they end up being in a relationship for 50 years. Oh, get the hell out with this guy and these amazing stories. (laughs) The first 11, they were friends, and eventually his marriage falls apart and they marry. Unbelievable. She was... She was. She had his eye on the, on yeah. the prize, man. Good, good God, that's cute. Well, what's crazy about this is we're still at the beginning of Jose's career. Like he's twenty three, and we're le- mm-hmm. we're leaving him in this episode at twenty three. He's still alive. We could spend a lot more time on this. We we haven't even gotten to Feliz Navidad. That happens a few years later. Uh, and you should go on YouTube and find all these performances from throughout his career. There's a, a super cut that I found where there's an amateur hour performance from when he's 17 next to a performance when he's on Ed Sullivan next to a performance when he's with Bing Crosby. And the dude still has it this year, 2021. He released a song with Dolly Parton. What? He's, he's, he's an absolute legend. And I'll read this quote again. The only thing I can say about all those versions is that they wouldn't have done it if I hadn't done it. And I'm glad that I did. It's unbelievable. Now, before we pack up and put a bow on this, I do think it's worth examining the Jimi Hendrix performance at Woodstock. I I talked about this at length when I was on 278 to Lighthouse Road back in the summer. They did a 4th of July special, and we talked about, uh, you know, songs that were related to patriotism and the flag and that sort of stuff. And, okay, here, quick details. First, this is not, like, I sort of had conceptualized that, like, he just got up on stage and this was the first time anybody had ever thought about Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem. It's not the case. He had actually recorded this. There are recordings yeah. in the experience box set from him doing this in March. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he did. And he also went on a little later than he was planning on. <laughs> oh, so later or earlier, depending on how you look at it. Right. So he's right. actually, it depends so- on what, depends on what kind of, how you see that, that glass. He, he was supposed to go on at midnight and he asks them to push it until 8 a.m. And there's, I, I say only, but there's only 40,000 people at the event at this point. Now, keep in mind, 40,000 people is a lot, but there were 400,000 people at certain points during the weekend. So this is a tenth of the crowd. Also, highest paid man on the bill, Jimi Hendrix. This is the height of his career. He is the highest paid musician pretty much in the world in 1968 which is crazy, and Noel Redding had just left the experience, so he's got a new band when he's at Woodstock. He collapses after that set, off stage. He's exhausted. Three weeks later, he's asked about the political implications of his performance, and he says, quote, we're all Americans. It was like, go America. We play it the way the air is in America today. The air's slightly static, see? <laughs> I love reading that in, my, in the way that I think Jimi Hendrix would have said it. Can you think of any other rock and roll national anthem performances worth noting here? The Marvin Gaye NBA playoff one really struck me. I saw that as a kid. 
on TV for some reason. And I'd never watched basketball, really. And I don't know why I watched it, but it was a, a very pivotal thing that never left me, ever. Now, there have been other performances that have ruffled feathers, but typically it's it's not intentional or political, or it becomes political because people assign it intention to it. But a lot of times yeah. it's just somebody sucking. Like Roseanne Barr? So that's the one I remember from being a kid, is in 1990, yeah. Roseanne Barr at a baseball game. And I remember, you know, I remember like the president, uh, the elder Bush at the time coming out and, and calling her disgraceful. Uh, it was yeah. a it was a whole thing, and I remember my parents being disgusted by it. So I'm ninety, I'm seven. So like that's a very early memory. But every few years, there's something to be commented on. Do you remember a few years ago, Fergie at the Staples Center? No, nah, I, I probably saw that name and just kind of zoned out. <laughs> then there was a Jimmy Buffett at the NFC Championship oh. in in 2018. Oh no, I didn't hear about that. There's a link in the show notes to a whole bunch of these if you just want to go binge the videos. They're, all the videos are there. Uh, ahead of the San Francisco Giants World Series ring ceremony in 2011, Sammy Hagar and Joe Satriani did a version, and Sammy just screwed up the words really bad. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. There's there's also a famous Michael Bolton performance where he keeps looking at his hand because he's written the lyrics on his hand. And I'd, like, I don't really think you should give him crap for that. Like... You know, we all get nervous. We we know we are performing sacred text. We don't want to screw it up. Let him write it on his hand. I I, I know one, and it's absolutely terrific. Can you pick the band? Which band? Do I, which, where, where am I going to take this? Are, are, where, you, what band? are you going to Aerosmith? No, we're going straight to Motley Crue. So Vince, Vince Neil was part <laughs> owner. You, Vince you Neil set was, it up for me and everything, yeah, and I walked away. Yeah, and you're like, do, 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 do. How do you like not go? No, we're going to Motley Crue. Uh, we're of course going to go to Motley Crue. Vince, part owner of an arena football league uh, team in God. Vegas, and and the video is, because he's like, oh, everybody, <laughs> you know, he's like, it's it's so weird, and. And it's almost like the crowd's like, all right, well, he's certainly giving it a good go. He's all, he's getting yeah, there. And, and it's, I mean, I would couldn't get up and sing that song. It's a tough Maybe. song to sing, which is something people don't really talk about when they talk about people messing it up. But it's a very hard song to sing. Do you remember uh, 2010 BCS championship game, Josh Groban and Flea? Uh, you you lost me at that sport, uh, but no, I didn't see that. That's interesting. Yeah, there's trumpets, drums, electric guitar, Groban, and Flea. It's really, really strange setup. Does Groban, by the way, is he just wearing underwear too? <laughs> oh, man, I almost got to that joke before you. He's only got a sock on, but it's just on his head. I was just thinking just underwear. He's much more of a kind of classy guy. He's not going to just do the sock. Anyway, in, keep going. In 2001, Steven Tyler did it for the Indy 500, but he brought his harmonica and it's just cringy. Cause like he just plays the harmonica for a while and then he starts to sing the anthem. It's very weird. And people did not like it. It was seen as very disrespectful. And then I, I feel like any list would be incomplete if we didn't mention Scott Stapp and the times he got to do the national anthem, like at the 2005 NASCAR 400 and this is like prime period where everyone complains about everything the Scott Stapp does, including writing the theme song for the Florida Marlins. Oh my gosh, that that was a thing. Oh boy, have you never heard the theme song for the Marlins? You lost me at baseball. Oh no. my god, dude, this is one of the greatest things to exist in the world. Let's play ball. It's game day. We want strikeouts, base hits, double plays. Take the field. Here's the 
believe you've never heard this. This is so terrible. God, man. One strike, two strikes, swing away. That is so terrible. He's just explaining plays in baseball. <laughs> oh, the hook, though. I mean, it's basically higher. Like, <laughs> so good, dude. Listen, man. I appreciate his enthusiasm. <laughs> I'm glad that so he happy. likes the Marlins a lot. <laughs> he really likes the Marlins. I mean, to just write a song where you say bass hit, that's one of the lyrics. <laughs> oh, man. I'm happy I could bring that to you. I also highly recommend like this guy who's on the internet doing an acoustic version. We want strikeouts, bass hits, double plays. Thousand views. It's just some dude in a flannel shirt playing the song on a guitar. I like his version better. He's into it almost as much as Scott Stapp is. I like his version better. One strike, two strikes, swing away. He still keeps the original, a little of that in there. Oh man! Uh, it's like right. a sea. It's like a, you know what it is. It's a sea shanty, but it's a different kind of sea shanty. You know <laughs> it's what kind a it sea is? Shanty. Do, do you know what kind of sea shanty it is? What? It's an awful. It's an awful, terrible sea <laughs> shanty about a baseball team <laughs> written by Scott Stapp. It, I like all joking aside. I think the actual technical term for that is sea shanty. Like I don't That's think correct. Dun 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 dun. Oh man! Uh, wow, that made my night. Um, if you want to get involved in the show, we are the story guys at gmail.com. <laughs> I'm now just picturing Scott Stapp full regalia on a ship with a big sloshing mug of beer singing that song. Yeah, I, I was imagining him in like that original like night. 1980 cla- uh, not Clash of the Titans. Is that what it was? The one of those Gladiator movies with Medusa or whatever. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. yeah. Got, but I, I wasn't imagining who the beer. I was imagining with a big like slushy, you know, the big <laughs> slushy from the store, the gas station, <laughs> with one of those that he holds with two hands. Because why wouldn't Florida man? Why wouldn't Florida man have the slushy with two hands? Big cup. The 185 ounce. We've we've gotten fully out of control on this episode. Uh, But please, rein us back in. We are the story guys at gmail.com. What do we need to do until next time? Girlfriended telling stories here. (laughs) (laughs) 
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.